pray that you would bless this time, help, uh, help this information to be informative, help it to be uh, encouraging and edifying. Help us to learn from these things, Lord, and help us to appreciate your faithfulness and your grace as we see them in church history. Amen. All right, so before we actually dig into the chapter, let's just, let's just talk for a second about why we're doing this. Why are you all getting your bones out of bed earlier than is absolutely necessary on a Sunday morning? What, what profit do you think there is to examining church history? What do you think, Eric? Why, why are we doing this? Why, why are you here? Besides the fact that we need you to run the soundboard, why are you here? Exactly. Uh, you know, we're the ironically one. Yeah. Um, ironically, one thing we that will come up today is the teaching manner of the of the early church once the apostles had died off. Um, it t- Christian teaching basically uh, was uh, involved just simply repeating what they had been taught, just simply quoting scripture passages and, re- and repeating what they had been taught, oftentimes without any legitimate, thoughtful, careful consideration of why. Like, it wasn't really being examined, what does the text mean? Um, and, I mean, this makes sense when you think about it. Um, how many of you grew up in a Christian home? Okay, uh, how many of you went to a Christian school? Okay, I, I, I went to a, a private Christian school. I grew up in the church. Were you ever told what to believe and what to do and how you were supposed to be, and you were just shown a series of, of what, what we call proof texts, where it's a list of verses, and maybe your pastor or teacher or parents would have provided a sheet of paper that... that um, had maybe the verse typed out or written out along with it. But, I mean, I can remember scores and scores of just do this because James one seventeen says so. And so we'll see early on, um, you know, where those who lived in the days of the apostles, those who were ministered to by the apostles and by eyewitnesses of, of the events, they... Grow, they grow up and they have families and they, they raise their kids in the faith. And the kids, the second generation, the third generation, didn't have to fight the same battles. They didn't have to learn what it means to be a Christian um, by coming out of a non-Christian background. They grew up in it. And so it became tra- things became tradition. And consideration wasn't given to why does the Scripture say this. So... Uh, I'm probably when I when I get to that part, I'm probably just going to fast forward since I just did it right now. But this is one of the big reasons why we study church history. We're we're understanding how is it that we came to where we are today? Why are things the way are, they are today? Well, that's because A led to B, led to C, led to D, and we're all the way down at Q. So, um, so when we examine church history, we can see how 
how the early church fathers, how the apologists, how, how, how bishops and, and uh, theologians have wrestled with issues in the day, and, and we can learn from their mistakes and successes. We can learn from their errors and failures, and there were plenty of both. Uh, and we, we can lear- hopefully learn from them, and we can make more informed and, and wiser choices. Uh, and particularly, like, when it comes to heresy, when it comes to, you know, theological matters and crises and, and questions, it's really interesting to find that there really is nothing new under the sun. Most every heresy that we face today that is plaguing the church has been dealt with before. So by studying church history, we, we learn how did previous generations deal with these things. Yeah. Why, um, I loved math in, in high school. I had, uh, I had a, a, a rarity of a teacher who made math fun. And one thing he was adamant about is it's not enough that you just have the right answer. He wants to see how you got there. Because for all he knows, you could have just copied off the, off the girl next to you because everyone knows she's smarter than you. Um, but a good teacher wants to know that his student is learning how to get to the right answer. Um, that's why it's important to learn how A led to B, led to C, led to D, and you know. Um, yeah. Heresy by itself comes from the word heter- It's the Greek word for two or second, heterox. And it means uh, uh, another of a different kind. So a heresy, by definition, is another faith. If you subscribe to heretical teaching, by definition, you are outside the one true orthodox saving faith. You are in another faith. That's the definition of heresy. A heretic is one who either subscribes to or, or more commonly is, is perpetuating and teaching a second faith. Um, and so you can understand in a, in a pluralistic society, heresy isn't that big of a deal because how arrogant to assume that there's one way and that you can objectively know that one way and that other ways might be wrong. Um, the, the third reason why we study church history, and th- this is more, um, I think this is more devotional. It's, uh, you know, learning how you got there is good. Uh, that's good for your theology. That's, you know, it's good to have right understanding. But for your devotional and, and your emotion, um, seeing God being, you know, Christ said that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. The number of times that the church should have just been swallowed up and evaporated. Um, you know, it, it's just like uh, Israel in the Old Testament. The number of times they should have been wiped off the face of the earth. Why weren't they? Because they have a they have a God who is faithful to His covenant with them. The number of times that God, you know, we we don't have inspired text telling us how, you know, what God is doing and how He, you know, that He specifically raised up this guy or raised up that guy. But by implic by um. 
uh, uh, deductive reasoning, it is obvious that God is still acting in history and is providing the right people at the right time to preserve and to build his church. And it is really, really good to see that throughout history. I mean, the number of times Eric and I have gone through this material and we go, wow, I, it, it's amazing that this guy just showed up at, the, at this time and just this thing happened. I mean, it's, it's like a great movie. You know, a, a good movie has that kind of, you know, I don't know how this is going to work itself out, but it does. So, okay, how much? Seriously, Daniel? All right. So no promises, no guarantees that I'm going to get through uh, this, this today. And I have no qualms about coming to a stopping point, and we'll resume next week. But this chapter, uh, if you have Needham, this is based on chapter 3. This is mostly looking at 2nd century. So as I alluded to earlier, we're looking at the generations after the apostles. Uh, you know, the, the apostles have passed away. This is now second, gener- second and third generations of churches and believers. And we're going to look uh, at Christian, uh, we're going to look at some of these leaders uh, after the apostles. Um, there's two terms that I, I just want you to know. Early church fathers, have you heard that before, early church fathers? Um, you know, if you're reading a, a theology book or, or a church history book, you'll often see, you know, references to the, to the church fathers. The early church fathers is a broader term referring roughly to the first five centuries. So early church fathers included men in the, in the 100s. Early church fathers included men in the church after Constantine and after Christianity be, became a legal religion. Um, so uh, early church father, expansive term, uh, broad term. The, the more narrow term is the apostolic fathers. That's basically going to be from around the time John disappears, 95 to 100, um, up till about 140. So early church fathers, five centuries. Apostolic fathers, this is that first uh, nugget of, of time uh, after the apostles, from about one, uh, 90, 100 to about 140. And then uh, after them, we will look at the apolog- apologists. Apolog- well, they do do apologetics. But uh, the, apolo- the apologists are the men really in the latter half of the, of the uh, second century. So mainly from around 140, 150, all the way to around 200. So I, I don't even know if we're going to get to them today. So, but we're going to look at, you know, who, who, is, who is influencing the church, uh, you know, some for the better, some for the worst. You know, who is leading, who is guiding, who is shaping things. So those are going to be the apostolic fathers. We're going to look at some of the main developments uh, in the church, in, in the Christian life. We're going to look at what persecution meant and looked like uh, during this period. And then, Lord willing... We'll look at the apologists, but no promises. Okay, so the first 40, 50 years of the second century, so 100 to about 150, is uh, called the age of the apostolic fathers. Now, um, there's like two or three more that Needham points out in his book, but these are just the the few we're going to look at. We're not even going to look at them very much in depth. 
many of them, most of them are pastors in churches. Some of them are not. Um, some of them, ironically, there's one called the letter to Diognetus. We don't know who Diognetus was or where he was. And we don't know who wrote the letter. But it was a beautiful letter, and so it was thrown in and, and uh, in with all these uh, apostolic father writings. But um, this is just a, uh, an example of, of, of the men and the sources of influence that were uh, in the first 50 years or so of the church. Uh, the letter of Clement, one of the earlier ones, is written by the Bishop of Rome, uh, around 96 A.D., so John may still be alive. This is one of the earliest ones, and he wrote uh, to the church of Corinth. There was conflict because, like I said, this is the age of the, of the second generation of Christians, and there was a conflict because the, the younger generation looked at the older generation, and uh, particularly the older bishops, the older pastors, and said, you know, y'all are behind the times. You're not relevant enough. So they dismissed their, their leaders and instill, installed new, uh, new younger bishops. And so Clement writes to the church of Corinth and says, whoa, 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 whoa. There is a chain of command here. God, the, the Father sent Christ. Christ appointed the apostles. The apostles appoint deacons. There's an order of command. Uh, order is a good thing. Unless there is good reason or due process, it, it, you can't just get rid of your bishops just because you don't like them. So uh, he appeals and, and exhorts them to restore their leaders to office. And uh, really, one of the prevailing themes of these letters is the uh, uh, building up um, or, or the defense of the office of the bishop. Um, so Clement is, is telling the church of Corinth to, to uh, reinstitute or restore their deposed leaders uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, he was a bishop of Antioch. In, do you remember that? Remember uh, that was where the Christian, what? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. Uh, just to be, just for right now, a bishop is a pastor. Um, and depending on, depending on what church you, you came from, maybe your denomination had bishops. There, um, I, there are still bishops around today. I don't quite exactly know what modern uh, denominations, like how, I don't, I don't know how a modern bishop is different from a pastor. I think they're, they could be the same thing in a evangelical Protestant church. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, uh, wrote um, to Polycarp. He wrote to the church in Rome. He wrote to to uh, seven churches in Asia Minor. Some of them being the same churches that John wrote to. And what what his among many things, what, his big push, his big appeal, was an argument for unity based on the presence and on the role of a single bishop, a single authoritative pastor in the church that each congregation was to have. Uh, the the Didache, this was um, written around 100, and that comes from the Greek word for teaching, didaskalos, and it, this is basically the earliest, um, do you know what a handbook is, like a manual? This is basically the earliest Christian manual of what does it look like 
to live like a Christian? What does it look like? What does it sound like to talk like a Christian? Uh, this this manual talked about um, the first half, kind of like Proverbs. It said, "Hey, there's a there's a way of life and there's a way of death. You know, how, how do you want to live? This is what this looks like. This is what that looks like." And then uh, it also covered church disciplines like prayer and fasting, baptism, communion, church leadership, and even how to handle visiting prophets. So that was the Didache, one of the one of the earliest we have. The third one or fourth one the fragments of papias i I mention this because uh this is a good example of uh you know it's important to know that not everything being disseminated not not everything with a christian stamp on it is necessarily good uh papias this he he wrote sometime between 110 to 130 he was the bishop of hierapolis in uh, asia minor like like galatia area uh, he wanted to preserve all the sayings and all the deeds of Jesus not recorded in the Gospels. Now, do you, anyone know what John twenty one twenty five says? There were indeed many things Jesus did, and if I, I suppose if if all of them were written down, not even not even all the books of the world could. could so so. Papias, he he, you know, there's all of these, um, you know, maybe urban legends or traditions um, of, of things that Jesus did. Remember, this is not that far removed. You know, there are some older people still around who may have heard Jesus or or heard the apostles, and so he goes around predominantly to the um, uh, dispersed Jewish Christians. You know, by this point, remember, Rome was uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and so even the Jewish Christians had fled. And so, so Papias goes around, he finds these, the, uh, wherever the, 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 local, the communities of Palestinian Christians, Jewish Christians are, and he says, hey, you know, what, what, what did you hear that Jesus did? What, what, did, what did you hear that Jesus said? And many of these sayings are, were very strange. Many of these uh, things like if, if you ever heard of uh, the Da Vinci Code, um, you know they they just rediscovered the 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 Gospel of of, um, of um, Thomas and Judas, and you know never mind that the church has already dealt with this probably five or six times. But you know we we've rediscovered these things, and there's all these things that Jesus said. Oh, we you know we've had it wrong all along. Um, yeah, uh, many of those things were found in Papias's writings, and immediately from the from the from as soon as they had it, the majority of the churches said, "That doesn't sound like what the Gospels write. That doesn't sound like the Jesus that we've been worshiping and teaching about for the last fifty, sixty years." So uh, the church did largely did not recognize Papias uh, Papias's fragments as um, legitimate or sincere. Or true. And so I just bring that up just to show you uh, sometimes just because something has a Christian stamp on it, just because you go to a Christian bookstore, you know, don't don't presume that everything is good and right and true. Uh, the letters of Barnabas uh, come uh, written around 120. This isn't the Barnabas in the in uh, that was the the cousin of Mark and traveling companion of Paul. Uh this uh, is an essay. It was written from Alexandria. And just tuck away in your minds 
that uh, uh, the the Alexandrian interpretation that that's going to come away. That's going to uh, become a big deal in future chapters. But um, the Alexandrians loved to interpret symbolically. There was a spiritual interpretation to to the scriptures. And Barnabas, th- this letter said that the Jews failed to rightly understand the scriptures because they were just too literal. And so uh, uh, this letter found spiritual and symbolic and allegorical interpretations for much of the Old Testament. Um, it was very anti-Jewish. It, it, it painted the Jews as just spiritually lost, spiritually blind, apostate uh, people who had uh, not only failed to understand the scripture, but they rejected their Messiah, and they still do, so they should just be cursed. Um, and and uh, this letter fostered a, uh, a negative attitude in Christians for a long time against the Jews. Uh, uh, oftentimes that hostility not really, you know, people not thinking why. Why do we think this way about them? So th- this became a tradition. And it shows how quickly the relationship between Jew and Christian was severed as, uh, this early in history. Uh, there's the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, not, not important for us to get into. Again, that one, again, is, is odd and weird. There's the uh, letter of Polycarp to the Philippines. Polycarp is important because tradition says he was a uh, disciple of John. And if you remember, Smyrna was one of the letters that uh, was one of the churches that John wrote to in Revelation. So his disciple, Polycarp, was the bishop in one of those churches. Uh, Polycarp, um, having a, a, a close connection to the apostles, being a disciple of John, Polycarp warned against departing from apostolic doctrine so this body of teaching the the things that the that the apostles have passed down through their writings through their memoirs the, the new testament don't depart from that from those things um he wrote against docetism we'll look at that in a few minutes it's a heresy um and he he exhorted uh, righteous living and submission to the bishops and the presbyters. Presbyters is just another word for pastor. We'll, we'll look at that in a second. Um, so th- these are, uh, these are the, 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 some of the surviving writers. These are some of the surviving influences that we have recovered through archaeology. And I'm sure that there were more. But these are, these are, this is a sampling, a good sampling of what we have in our hands uh, as to what was being disseminated, what was being passed around, what was influencing and shaping the church. And I, I, I think you could see, you could agree, many of these men were bishops and pastors, and many of them were arguing uh, and defending the office of the pastor. So uh, looking at the developments of Christianity, what was going on in the Christian life and in the church. Uh, we'll begin looking at, you know, how, how did church organization change? Nope, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So how did church organization change? Well, again, this is the period where the, the apostles, you know, the men who largely founded the churches uh, and who, uh, who preached in these churches, you know, after they left Jerusalem, they are now gone, 
And with their passing, there is this major question, who's going to fill their shoes? Who's going to lead the church? Who's going to guide the church? Who's going to be the authoritative voice? And who would preside over church administration? Who's going to give order to the service? And this, the, the reason why this theme, why, why this thing was so prevalent in, in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers is because there were many voices be, being heard. And it was a cacophony. It was, it was chaotic. It was confusing as to who should listen to. I mean, I can remember, I, I, I remember in my naivety, you know, going into the family Christian bookstores and just assuming, you know, I could just pick up any book and just read it and probably be edified. I, it, was, it was startling when I first discovered that, you know, there's heresy in here. Like, there, there's actually bad stuff. Things that, you know, you, you, some of the books... You just flip over to the back and, and, and you see some of the, you know, some of the, the, the most renowned quotes of the book. And like, that actually doesn't agree with what Scripture says over here. So uh, there, is, there, there, there are many voices. You know, um, the, the church is growing. Uh, uh, those in authority within the church are, are gaining some level of privilege and power. And so... Sometimes even with, uh, for ill incentive, some men rise up and want to take that power. And we even see that in the days of the apostles, right? So, so with, with, the, with the chaos of all these voices, it, there's this question. Who's going to fill the role? Who's going to step into the shoes of the apostles? And so we see this, we see this uh, progression um, beginning you know, uh, in Scripture, if, if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, turn to First Peter 5. And you're going to see that, um, well, not in First Peter, but here there's this progression from the beginning of the second century. So at 100, you know, there, there is two offices in the church. You have the, you have the pastor or the elder, and then you have the deacon. Right. I mean, uh, Charlie and Daniel and Eric, you know, you you men have gone through Strzok. Uh, You know, you you know this. So two ordained offices, elder, deacon. But by the end of the second century, there is there is a development of a clearly recognized threefold leadership. You have the bishop and then you have the presbyter, which is uh, a, a pastor. I mean, both of these are pastors, and then you have the deacon. And so no, one, no one's confused about what the deacon is. You know, the deacon is the, is, is the servant. He's the helper of the church. The confusion is, uh, is over these two things. And if you have First Peter, uh, Peter is writing, uh, who, who does he address in First Peter 5.1? To the, okay, that word elder is presbyteros. That's what presbyteros is the technical term for elder. Uh, and then he says, uh, go down to verse 2, because he talks about himself, you know, as a fellow elder among you and as a witness. And go to verse 2. What is he urging them to do? Okay, shepherd. That is the word that becomes pastor. And it, you know, it even sounds like, you know, pasture, pastor. It, 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 they, they come from the same word. So... A presbyter, an elder, was one who pastors the church. 
And then what is the first descriptive word that is linked to pastoring? What, what's that first um, uh, describing word that follows shepherd the flock of God among you? Exercising oversight. Oversight. Episcopos. Bishop. That's what bishop means, overseer. So, like, um, epi, meaning the whole or, or abroad. Scopos, like a scope. Overseer, a supervisor. I don't know how they derived it, bishop, but that's what the word means, overseer. And so, looking at 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, and there, there's other passages, but this one passage has all three words. To the elders, y'all need to pastor and do so by exercising oversight. Those are, those are all different words describing the office and function of the elders in the church. And so in Scripture, and by the beginning of the second century, there's no confusion. A, a bishop is a presbyter. And then you have the deacons. But by the end of the second century, there's this development, there's this delineation between these two. Um... And some of that is largely due to some of the uh, arguments, some of the um, things being said in the letters in the, in the, of the Apostolic Fathers, particularly Ignatius. Uh, fairly early on, he was, he was very adamant that there was a distinction between the two. And then ironically, um, Jerome, which we'll look at, uh, a man we'll look at in a couple chapters down the road, he's the guy who wrote the Vulgate, uh, he uh, demonstrated from the scriptures that in the days of the apostles, a bishop and an elder and a and a uh, pastor were all the same thing. Anyway, this is this is one of the major developments. You have two offices in scripture and in the beginning of the second century. By the end of the second century, you have three. And so, what was um, what was the difference between the two? The bishop, bishop is the primary leader and teacher of the local church. You know, and, and the idea is, is he would typically be uh, an experienced, older, mature man who has spent his life studying the scriptures. Uh, he has a, a time-proven uh, testimony of, of, of being faithful to the scriptures. He knows how to accurately handle the scriptures. And very importantly, he was, uh, he was ordained by, a, the, by an older, mature man who came before him. So he was put in his office by, by a respected and trusted man. By, by virtue of his time in the pulpit, he is a, a, a trusted man and faithful man. And so he is the primary leader and teacher of the church. Uh, he was seen above all else. He... he uh, he was above all else the guardian and the steward of apostolic doctrine, which he primarily provided through his preaching. That was his big shtick. He's a preacher. He's a teacher. Uh, in addition to that, that, that was his main function. He conducted services of worship. He oversaw uh, church discipline. He, uh, the bishop alone had the power to ordain other bishops. Bishops would be uh, elected and, and nominated by congregational vote. So the body would put forth a man, but the bishop alone had the right to actually ordain him. Now, 
that that practice uh, led to the development of what the Roman Catholic Church calls apostolic succession. So, you know, in 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 this environment, in this atmosphere, where you have all of these uh, voices, you know, people writing letters, and some of them good, some of them not, some of them genuine, some of them not. How do you know uh, what to believe? Well, you're trusting in a man who you know him personally. You know his, you know that he's trustworthy. He's spent thirty the last 30, 40, 50 years of his life studying the scriptures, you're going to put your trust in, in, in his counsel and teaching. And so, and then you're likewise going to trust the guy that he chooses to replace him. That, that's the uh, apostolic succession. Uh, the, apostle, or, uh, the apostles uh, placed these men, and then, then these men placed their successors, and then th- those men placed their successors. Now, over time, that's going to, um, that, understanding of their uh, of their trustworthiness and their authority is going to be uh, kind of inflated a little bit and within a couple centuries um, apostolic succession is going to mean that all throughout his, all throughout the line uh, they are infallible they are, they cannot err and that that's a doctrine that develops uh, in um, as we get closer and closer and closer to the Roman Catholic Church and that's why they that's why they argue that the that the Pope the Bishop of Rome when he speaks um, ex cathedra, he is inerrant. That comes from that. That is a much down the road development of of the, of the building up of the bishop here. So uh, the bishop is the is the top dog. He is the primary leader. the The presbyters are the secondary leaders. Now, just remember remember what we just looked at in First Peter five. Is there is there a biblical argument? To see a to to, to uh, differentiate between the the presbyter, uh, presbyters elders and the bishop. I don't think so. So the presbyters, they're the secondary leaders. Uh, they, 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 uh, they were not seen as a, simply assistants to the bishop. They, uh, they were seen as, as leaders, but they had, to, they had to support and answer to the bishop. They, uh, they would assist and lead in worship. They would assist in, uh, in the disciplines of the church. And then you had the, the third class, uh, or the third office, the deacons, and they're the word deacon, diaconoi, literally means servant. Uh, and these were men um, who were responsible for uh, meeting. You know, they would distribute the church resources, church money. They would distribute food to the sick and to the poor, those who weren't able to come to the assembly. Uh, they would distribute also the bread and wine in communion during the service. Okay, so... How the how the the Christian teaching in the church developed? I already um, I covered that at the very beginning that there was you know this is now the second and third generation. Um, people tend to not really care about something if it was if it wasn't something that they had to fight for. If, if mom and if dad and grandpa struggled in that, 
you know, I grew up in the positive consequences of that conflict, and so I never, I didn't have to struggle with that. So uh, there was a very narrow, very conservative, very rigid attitude towards doctrine. They often believed the right things if they were in a good church, but they often didn't care why they believed that. Um, Now, there are two heresies that developed during this time. And we see uh, Ignatius, in particular, responding to docetism. Uh, docetism is, uh, comes from the Greek word to appear or to seem. And this, uh, this is a heresy that comes from, um, it's, in, it's heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Again, file this away in your minds. One major uh, feature of Greek philosophy is that if it's, if it's spiritual, it's inherently good. If something is spiritual, it is inherently, it is by nature good and positive and true and worthy. Um, the flesh, you know, the, the, the world of matter and the flesh and your body, all of that hinders and stymies and, and, and uh, halts the, the progress of the spiritual. And so there was, a, there was a, you know, everyone is looking towards spiritual things and just not caring about what happens in in, in the physical world. So docetism, because of that um, feature of Greek philosophy, which it's going to come up in, in Platonism, it's going to come up in Gnosticism. Spirit good, matter bad. You know, just, and just remember, what did God say after he created the world? It is, yeah, it's good. So matter is not inherently bad. Um, Docetism, uh, because because, uh, matter and the flesh and body is bad and God is good, particularly Jesus is good, how do you, how do you, how do those two mesh together? If, how can God being good uh, uh, dwell in a body of flesh, which is bad? Well, they, they reason that he just appeared to be a man. And, and this would mean that he wasn't actually born and that he didn't actually suffer and die and that he w- didn't actually uh, ri- uh, uh, be brought back to life and he's not actually going to physically come back. You know, that, 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 that poses problems for passages like Romans 5 that, you know, says that he is, you know, he became the second Adam so that those who are born again in him you know, born after his likeness can not suffer the consequences of being born in the likeness of the first Adam. Does that make sense? Christ had to become a man so that he could become our substitute. So there, there's problems if Jesus only appeared to be a man, if he didn't actually have a tangible, touchable body. And that's why, you know, sometimes in, in, in the Gospels, like, you know, when it says that, that he ate fish or that he was tired and he was asleep, uh, or he was hungry, or he was thirsty, or, you know, he said, look at, look at the wounds in my hand. Like, there, there's a reason that the scripture provides evidence he was a physical, real man. The other heresy was, uh, uh, and, and, and just on docetism, you can even see John responding to uh, 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 docetism before it became a big hit. If, uh, 1 John 4, if anyone denies uh, the son coming in the flesh, you know, things like that. So Ebionism. Ebionism was the other major heresy 
And there were probably a, a, a number of, of smaller heresies during that time, but these are the two that are most prevalent and that we know about. Ebionism uh, was uh, a belief that we needed to get we need to get back to the early you know early Jerusalem church days. You know, this get back to the roots of of the Christian faith. And so, let's see. And so, uh, proponents of this view of, of this faith or heresy. Um, they would search, they, they would um, they would go back to, they would try to find the last remnants of the Jewish Christian communities that were around and they would uh, you know people who would still practice the, the Old Testament ceremonial rites they would still practice circumcision um, and they would basically try to be they would emphasize they would exalt the, the Jewishness the Hebrew um, part of the faith they taught that Jesus was not the God-man. He is simply just a really, really, really good prophet. He's an exalted prophet, but he's not God. So you can see how these, these two heresies are really opposite sides of, this, of the same coin. One side says he is God, but not a man. The other one says he's a man, but not a God. Um, Ebionism taught that Jesus wasn't born the Son of God, but that he was adopted. He, he became, in some spiritual sense, he became the Son of God at his baptism. And uh, Ebionism rejected all of Paul's writings. Yeah, so that, that has a very, li- very, very limited New Testament canon. Okay, I'll go for about three or four more minutes. Okay, uh, as far as development in, in worship, uh, the major source for, for this we get from Justin Martyr. He's going to be uh, one of the apologists. I, I think he's probably the most known apologist. Um, some of you may have heard of him. And his, name was, his last name wasn't Martyr, but they gave him that. Can anyone guess why they gave him that na- last name or surname? Yeah, he was he was killed for the faith. So we um, he wrote uh, two apologies, and that's not saying I'm sorry. An apology was a was a defense. It was a legal term, um, basically um, like when you're uh, if you, if you go to trial and you have a lawyer, your lawyer is going to make a statement in your defense. He's going to say, "My client didn't do it. He couldn't have done it. He wasn't there. There's no evidence, you know, of the whatever like that." That is an apologia. It is a it is a reasoned, thought out, prepared defense. And so he writes two apologies, uh, as well as a letter uh, called um, "Dialogue with Trifo the Jew." And in his first apology, we actually get uh, a really um, thorough uh, picture of what the worship service looked like. Um, let's see. There would be. The, the the three main ingredients uh, or components of the service would be the reading and expounding of scripture and prayer and then uh, communion was was celebrated every week. Now the um, the the there's a dichotomy between the service. Prayer would be included in both, but the 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 first half would be the service of the word and then the service of the Eucharist, and there would be. There would be prayer in both. So half of the service is dedicated to the, the, 
the scripture, half of the service is dedicated to communion. Now, what's interesting is, you know, some churches only do communion, you know, we do communion once a month. Some churches do it more often. Some churches do it quarterly. Or I've even heard as infrequent as half a year, or uh, biannually. Has anyone heard even less than that? Wow. What? What, is there a, is it a, is that a denomination or was it just a particular church? Okay, well the early church celebrated it every week, and there was a much greater emphasis on that. Something that we don't really emphasize, George. Um. And well, I've never we've never really addressed that. I can think the reason why I wouldn't do it every week is because I think the I think we have a lower view of it and the more often we the more repetitive we do it the more often we do it the more it just becomes a tradition I mean I'm not a, I wouldn't be opposed to doing it every week but that's something we'd have to take up with uh well Carl in the meantime and Ben the 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 guy who does the communion so we'll, we'll 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 talk about that later. Let me let me just uh, let me try to come to a stopping point here. Um, so something we don't make a big fuss about or, or, or emphasize communion was greatly emphasized. It was it was a huge part of the service in the early church. Something that we put a lot of. Hold on a second, George. Hey, hey, hey. Hold on a second. So. Something that we put a lot of emphasis on. Something that people leave churches over. The, the, the style of music, the, the worship service, the songs. Whether or not they use a keyboard, whether or not they use a, a guitar. You know, There are splits over things like this. People leave because of stuff like that. Early church didn't care about singing. Now they, they did sing, um, but it was not emphasized. It was primarily chanting. Uh, it was, uh, uh, has anyone heard of responsive singing? I mean, we, we do this, you know, we, we have some songs that are like this, you know, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. For he is good, he is above all things. Okay, stop, I have to, I have to finish up. But yeah, so it, it would, it would be something like that where, um, where, a, uh, and it was often based on the Psalms. Sometimes it, uh, there were there were hymns that were written, and uh, typically the bishop or or a deacon would say the first phrase, and then something like uh, something like Amen or Alleluia or the or the rest of the phrase would be repeated by the congregation. It most people today would look at something like that and just fall asleep, but that was how the early church did it, and they loved it. Um, one of the, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop right here, but one of the reasons for that is because um, the early church, the, the, the early Christians believed that the Jews used instruments. You know, you, you see that in some of the Psalms, you know, praise the Lord with the tambourine and the harp and the lyre and the this and the that, you know, praise him with stringed instruments, praise him with the brass. Um, but the Jews are the ones who are lost and spiritually blind, and they're the ones who rejected their Messiah, and they still reject their Messiah. And the pagans, they have instruments in their services, in, in their worship of the, of the gods. 
we're not supposed to be like the pagans. We're not supposed to be like the Jews. So we're not going to use instruments. Again, that's that's one of the traditions that developed. I don't I don't think that could be I don't think that's a tradition that can be biblically argued. That's more that's a more philosophical thing. But uh, we are at a stopping point. Uh, we will resume uh, looking at next week, looking at the rest of the of the worship service. We're going to look at how. Uh, the early Christians conflicted with their pagan societies, and then we'll have a, a word to say about Justin Martyr and the apologists. Before I close, is there any questions? Okay, if, if, if you do have any questions or any insights, if there's anything you want to talk about this, um, email me. I don't have my email up, but does anyone not know my email? Does anyone not know how to get a hold of me? Okay. I'd love to interact with you. I'd love to, um, you know, answer any questions you have. If there's anything in church history that you, you know, that you have an interest in and you, you want to, you know, have covered in here, approach me and talk to me about it, and I'll see if I can work at it. No promises, but let's close. Lord, thank you for this morning. Again, I thank you for this uh, body of believers. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your grace, which you provide uh, faithfully every morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for preserving your church throughout the ages. Help us to look, help us to look even more unto Christ every day. Amen.